0: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code INTELLIGENCE at the checkout. A better web starts with your website.
2: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening to all of you here in London and to everyone that's joining us from around the world. I'm Jemima Khan from Intelligence Squared. Welcome to the first in our series of Google Plus versus debates organized by Intelligence Squared. I'm now going to go backstage we'll be fielding questions from you in the audience and you on the web. And now please welcome our chair for the evening, Emily Maitlis.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight the big question is whether or not we should be calling an end to the war on drugs. To debate this, we've assembled the cast the world needs to hear from. We have former presidents of nations on the front line of this war. We have leading spokesmen and women on the subject. We have Richard Branson, Louise Arbour, the former head of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, Antonia Maria Costa. We have the actor, Russell Brand. We have the activist, Julian Assange. We have law enforcement specialists. We have experts and writers on the subject. Now, as you know, some of our speakers are with us here at King's Place in London. Others are going to be joining us via Google's new Hangout technology. Wherever you are, you'll get the chance to put your questions to the speakers. If you're in the hall, you can text your questions to the number on the handout sheet uh, that you've been given. If you're on the web, enter your question and remember to tell us who you're addressing it to. Also, if you can, where you're from. Jemima, our audience rep, will be sifting through the messages, your thoughts, your questions in real time on the Hangout. And your vote is, of course, crucial. So, as with all Intelligence Squared debates, we've already asked you to vote either in the hall here or online. In a short while, I'll be announcing the result of that pre-vote. Then, at the very end of the debate, when you've had a chance to listen to both sides, we'll be asking you to vote again. For those of you here in London, uh, there'll be a ballot box which will come round about 10 minutes before the end of the debate, and you just need to tear the ticket in two, use the for or against half to put it in the ballot box. And if you still haven't made up your mind, that's fine too. Just put the whole ticket back into the box. Let us get into the meat of the subject then, and the motion tonight is it's time to end the war on drugs. That war, declared by President Nixon over 40 years ago, And involves agreements by all the countries of the world that they will prosecute, punish drug takers, suppliers, and producers. Has it worked? Does it still do more good than harm? Is there any reasonable alternative? So, is it time to end the war on drugs? Well, to frame this evening's discussion, please welcome first up the President of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos.
4: Good evening to everyone around the world watching this event, the first uh, Google Plus Versus, uh, I think it's called, debate organized by Intelligence Squared. The subject of the discussion is one of worldwide importance, and it's going to be debated in true democratic fashion, not just by international speakers, but also by a huge audience watching all over the world who have a chance to listen to all the arguments and make up their minds. More than 40 years ago, President Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs. Since then, we have been fighting against this global problem, but at a great cost. Sometimes we feel that we have been pedaling on a static bicycle. You look right, you look left yet you always see the same landscape. Demand for drugs keeps rising, and obviously, supply follows. That is why we think it is time to have an in-depth discussion about this situation. We believe that we must look at all the possible alternatives to face this huge challenge in a more effective way. All, I repeat, all the options must be considered through a non-ideological, non-politicized, a rigorous evidence-based discussion of the costs and benefits of each alternative. The scientists and the experts must be the ones that do the, the analysis and the research and lead the discussion, which I hope all nations concerned should participate especially the largest consumer and the largest producer countries. In Colombia, we have been, I would say, relatively successful. We have made great progress in reducing uh, coca cultivation and in fighting the traffic of of drugs. We have dismantled the once all-powerful cartels, but we have also paid a very high cost. We have lost our best judges, our best journalists, our best politicians, our best policemen, our best soldiers. But the problem has not disappeared, and our success has meant that it, uh, this problem has now moved to other countries. So we do think it is our responsibility to determine if we are doing the best we can or if there are better options. I think it is time to be creative and open-minded. We need to address the real root causes of the consumption of drugs. I have said Colombia cannot and will not act unilaterally. A new international consensus is needed because this is a global problem and therefore must have, it must have, a global solution.
3: We heard there from President Santos of Colombia talking about a need to be creative and to be open-minded, but warning that Colombia could not act unilaterally. Well, now, to kick off the debate itself, welcome our first orator in favour of relaxing drug control, Misha Glenny.
5: The war on drugs has failed. It just doesn't work. Forty years after Richard Nixon launched this senseless campaign, drugs are more available than ever. They're more powerful than ever. And let's talk a little about the unintended consequences of the war on drugs. And for this, I want to quote an expert in the field who writes of a huge criminal black market that now thrives to get prohibited substances from producers to consumers. The author of that quote... Why, it's none other than my opponent this evening, Antonio Maria Costa. So even those who prosecute the war on drugs recognise the terrible damage that it inflicts. But I want to introduce you to some of his most resolute allies, members of a major marijuana trafficking syndicate that I got to know while I was researching my book on global organised crime mafia. These narco-traffickers... Support the war on drugs. The very guys that we're spending billions trying to track down every year want the policy to continue. Why? Because they're making so much money from an unregulated, illicit market, and they are so confident that they'll never get busted that they'd be crazy to switch to an alternative which would regulate them, which would tax them, and perhaps pay for public health services. What about the uh, unintended consequences for public health? Well, in a regulated market, governments can protect people from the deadliest ingredients of narcotics. But by refusing to regulate, governments allow our young people, for example, to snort cocaine, which is cut with rat poison or with fibreglass. That is not protecting Our young people, that is killing them. And talking about killing, let's think for a moment of the tens of thousands of innocent victims in Mexico, Afghanistan, and elsewhere whose deaths are the consequence of the unintended consequences of the war on drugs. Why do so many Latin American leaders now insist to end the war on drugs? It's because it's their compatriots who are paying with their lives for a policy of prohibition which the West can't even enforce. Oh, yes, law enforcement. Now, this evening, you may hear some witnesses from the other side who will say that the reason the war on drugs isn't working is simply because we don't put enough police resources into it. The UN says that to make this business unprofitable then we would have to block 75% of the trade. The current estimate, between 20 and 30%. It's not even close. If you want to have the requisite police forces to do something about the war on drugs to make it successful, I'm afraid you'll have to go to North Korea. You know, recently, I was talking to a senior official at the British Foreign Office, and he said to me, When they look back in a hundred years' time, will they see this policy for what it is? The emperor's new clothes? The time has come for this immoral, for this inhumane and this irrational policy to stop. Because the emperor is not only stark naked, he's drenched in blood from head to toe. So please join in me in demanding an end to this senseless war on drugs. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Misha. Now, please welcome the orator in favour of retaining drug control, Antonio Maria Costa. You have four minutes, Antonio.
6: Good evening. Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, forget about the war on drugs... Jargon I never used. The motion tonight is not about war or peace. It's about drug legalization. And this motion must be opposed for many reasons. The first reason is factual. For over a century now, countries have unanimously agreed that drugs are dangerous to health and must be controlled. Without doubt, over time, Controls on drugs have protected our health. Listen to the numbers. Tobacco, Misha, this is a good example or a bad example of a regulated market. Tobacco is consumed by one third of humanity and kills five million people a year. Alcohol, regulated in Muslim countries, otherwise free, is consumed by a quarter of humanity and kills. Two and a half million people. Drugs, cocaine, amphetamines, etc. are universally controlled and are consumed by a fraction of humanity. Less than 5% admit to use it once a year, which is a very broad definition. Drugs kill 500,000 people a year. One-tenth than people killed by the regulated market Misha mentioned, Tobacco. My next point is about crime, and I confirm what I said and I will say it again, drug prohibition has caused crime. We must fight it, but not with the simplistic argument legalized drugs and crime will disappear. Please, Misha, the world is not flat with only two dimensions, drugs and crime. What about health? I said and repeat that legalization will cause a drug epidemic. And I give you the evidence. Not based on the common sense notion that greater availability of anything, drugs or anything else, causes great use, and in this case addiction. There is something much, much more sinister around here. Behind posh meetings like tonight, are big investors in the expectation that drugs one day will be legal. And I have in mind bankers and venture capitalists and pharmaceutical companies. They are all developing drug brands and marketing plans ready to enter the drug market. Just Google their names and you will discover that in the future there will be no more drug mafias Misha's expectation, but white collar drug investors. The pro-drug coalition can even count on politicians who expect tax revenue from drugs. Was mentioned before. But tax revenue from drugs. Think of California and the referendum there. Drug legalization has even suggested to was even suggested to Greece to avoid bankruptcy. In short. After financial crisis, home foreclosures, job losses, the world does not need addiction and death from drug legalization. Ladies and gentlemen, drug legalization is privatization of investors' gain and socialization of our health losses. The 1% strikes again. I conclude with a third point, very briefly, Governments need to protect both health and security. Therefore, rather than legalizing drugs, which is an easy way out, I invite leaders to show political courage. First, treat addiction as an illness, sending addicts to hospital rather than to jails. Second, fight corruption, the main lubricant to drug crime. Mexico is a good example, President Fox. It it ranks 99 in the World Index of Integrity. How can a corrupt country fight crime? And, of course, oppose money laundering. Think of the Vakovia Bank in New York. Caught recycling last year. $480 million of Mexican drug money. And they were not even indicted. Governor Spitz, you better go back to New York fast. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen... Stand united against this threat to health and vote against the motion to legalize drugs.
3: Thank you very much, uh, Antonio. Now, before we continue with the debate, I'm going to read out the result of the pre vote on the web. Now, there we have 92% of you in favor of the motion, in favor, that is, of ending the war on drugs. 3% 3% were against on the web 5% abstained or didn't know here in the hall a uh, rather different picture but uh, perhaps a similar reflection 60% for 15% against 25% of you right in the hall have abstained or said uh, you didn't know uh, remember we're looking for the change that we see uh, if there is any at the end of the night after the debate We're going to move on to the next stage of the debate in which our two advocates on either side of the argument are going to question our eminent witnesses. Now, the stage will be divided into three separate acts, each devoted to a major theme relating to the war on drugs. And we start with this. End the war on drugs to break the power of the drug cartels and release their grip on politics. I'm going to hand over, first of all, to Geoffrey Robertson, QC, the advocate for the motion, It's Time to End the War on Drugs. The floor is yours, Geoffrey. Thank you, Emily. In 1971,
7: Richard Milhouse Nixon declared a war on drugs with the words, and I quote, it will achieve a drug-free world. Has it, uh, Richard Branson?
8: Uh, no, it hasn't. It's... it's um filled our prisons, um, it's uh, not cut down the usage, um, it's cost millions in taxpayers' dollars, uh, it's fueled organised crime, um, and it's basically been an unmitigated failure. The problem's got
7: worse and worse every decade. Mm-hmm. In one of Mr Costa's reports recently, he said that 250 million people take illicit drugs, less than 10% have any problems with it. So that rather means about 225 million people take drugs for pleasure or to relieve pain. Uh, Are they the enemy? No, they're
8: they're not the enemy. I mean, I just want to make it clear I'm I'm part of something called the Global Drug Commission, um, which has got people like Kofi Annan and Paul Volcker and George Shultz and, you know, 15 ex-South ex- South American presidents. Um, and they looked at the whole uh, war on drugs in the last um, uh, 40 years, 50 years, and um, realized that it certainly hadn't worked. And, mm-hmm. and what they said was, don't necessarily legalize it. I mean, I don't know why Why, this, why, why he's saying we've gone from has the war on drugs worked to, you know, we're advocating legalising it. They, they said don't necessarily legalise it. Well, they're it, trying to change the they're nature they're of they're the debate. Mr.
7: Costa wouldn't even mention the war on drugs. Yeah. He's pretending that this is a debate about whether all drugs should be legalised. Yeah. So is that is that your position? Uh, so, what, what the
8: commission said and was um, experiment with different approaches. In Portugal, they, ten years ago, they decriminalised drugs and not one person has gone to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, um, they help people who've got, who've got, who are on heroin, they give them methadone, they give them clean needles, and they managed to reduce the amount of heroin addicts by 50%. Um, they have managed to stop people breaking and entering. An enormous percentage less of people are now breaking and, and entering. And what
7: about young people, people under 18? That's uh, that, gone that, down. That's
8: gone down, I believe, on all, all, all drugs. But... Um, and but anyway, any sign the, the of most these... important thing is there's no sign no sign of uh, you know a major increase in a problem in in, in, in any sectors and,
7: and no sign of big corporations making money out of it no so, they, they, so this is all they've
8: simply done is decriminalize now that, that is one approach that um, I think would get rid of you know would it basically means that you know if my brother or sister or my um, children have a drug problem I do not want them to go to prison. I want mm-hmm. them to be helped. And I think, you know, that that, that, that um, survey, which talked about, you know, ninety-seven percent of people believe the war on drugs has failed. They're every everybody and a lot of people in this world are looking for an, an alternative approach.
7: Mm-hmm. Uh, when you want to change your mood, uh, do you have a drug?
8: Well, I'm afraid I, I drink alcohol, which um, Lancet for- says is wor- worse than uh, uh, than marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know that. You know the current president of America has smoked, and Barack
7: Obama, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, he didn't inhale, I believe. No, there were. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You don't inhale hash
8: (laughs) brownies. You know, I mean, Steve. Steve. Steve Steve Jobs. We might not have had the iPad if he'd been arrested for the kinds of drugs he'd taken in his lifetime. So,
7: if if Steve Jobs had been arrested for his LSD use. We wouldn't have the iPad. um, uh, But anyway,
8: obviously, look, the the war war on jobs is an ass. Mm
7: -hmm. And we've got Russell Brand, have we not, hanging out? Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Russell. What do you make of this? Should we
9: end the war on drugs? I don't think having wars on anything is a solution. (laughs) I think that even in the nomenclature of declaring war against a problem, you exacerbate and enhance the problem. I'm a recovering drug addict and know that drug addiction is an illness, it's a disease. So Mm -hmm. by criminalising that, you criminalise a huge percentage of the population, you malign them and stigmatise them, you generate more crime, you create a criminal culture, and speaking from from the perspective of a sufferer, it's simply not helpful. You feel like that you're outside of the mainstream culture. Uh, you and Richard made some interesting points about uh, influential figures. I mean, the President of the United States, he's kind of influential. Steve Jobs, he's kind of influential. But <laughs> no, I mean Russell and Russell
7: Brand, too. What was your drug of choice, Russell?
9: I don't know if it was a choice. That's the nature of the disease. But I used a lot of heroin, I used a lot of crack, I used a lot of marijuana, I used Mm. a lot of alcohol. And I think regardless of the state of legislation that is prescribed to the drug, I think that they I think I don't think the drugs that are not dangerous, I don't think people should be taking drugs. I think Mm -hmm. the contrary, I don't take drugs, I don't drink. I think by treating it as a crime instead of treating it as an illness we have the wrong perspective I think we need to behave altruistically and compassionately towards people that are ill and I think that then we can systematically affect our society more positively I think the minute you say that someone is a criminal you ostracize them
7: okay so (laughs) you're not the enemy
9: I don't think that we should regard anyone as enemies or villains within our culture, certainly not people that have got drug problems. I think that we need to be inclusive and tolerant. And This is from my, just from my own experiences as a suffering drug addict. I think the more inclusive the host culture is, the better we can resolve these problems.
7: Russell, thanks very much for being with us. We've Thank now, you. We've now got... <laughs> We now have hanging out Vicente Fox, the former president of Mexico. Can you hear me, Vicente?
10: Yes, very clear. Hello to everybody.
7: Thank you for joining us. You were the democratically elected president of Mexico in the year 2000. You said when you started, the war on drugs is the mother of all battles. How do you feel about it now?
10: Well, uh, I feel that... uh, in the case of Mexico, it's most urgent that we stop the war. And we need to reach peace. Because on peaceful and harmful and joyful scenarios is the only way that human beings perform at the very best. So we have to stop the war that has caused close to 60,000 young kids killed, 15, 25-year-olds, among them, many innocents. Among them, over hundreds of policemen and hundreds of military.
7: Is there a real I climate? Think, is there a climate of fear in Mexico today because of the war on drugs?
10: It's the loss and the cost is incredible. starting with fear that has caused loss of hope to the future. Our youth cannot even think of a future. They want this war to be stopped. Number two, this war has caused a strong and heavy economic burden on the development of the nation. The loss of tourism, the loss of foreign investment, the loss of our face of growth. There is my friend Fernando Enrique Cardoso. When I was president, Mexican economy was 25% larger than Brazilian. Mm -hmm. And today, Brazilian economy is 50% Larger than and have, I
7: just country. want to. I'm going to come back to you, but you've come under pressure from the White House, haven't you, in 2006, not to decriminalise small amounts of cocaine and cannabis.
10: Well, uh, of course, Mexico's uh, consumption of drugs is not penalised. United States consumption of drugs is penalised, mm-hmm. and millions of consumers in that nation are walking on the street without nobody uh, making them responsible for what they call a crime. Well, President, President I Fox,
7: I'm going to come back presidency. to you later, but because of our shortness of time, I've, I'm going to you, Johan. Is this just a metaphor, war on drugs, or are no, people being hurt?
11: It's not like the war on poverty, which is a politician's metaphor. This is an actual war fought with actual guns just as much as Vietnam or Iraq. And it's really important to explain the mechanism by which that happens. When you criminalise a really popular substance, it doesn't vanish. You transfer control from doctors and pharmacists to armed criminal gangs. Those armed criminal gangs have no way of establishing contracts. They don't have franchises. Are they quaking
7: in their boots, the cartels?
11: On the contrary, we know that they are absolutely on the side of maintaining the war on drugs. Jorge Ramon, the head of La Mafia Cruenza, was caught on wiretap saying, this war is an absolute sham that keeps all of us in business. Everyone watching this should know that the cartel bosses watching tonight have definitely got a side in this debate, and it ain't ours.
7: Right. What about other other authoritarian countries? What about China? What do they do?
11: Well, we know that any country that enforces the war on drugs has a significant rise in the homicide rate, which is really important to understand. After alcohol prohibition ended in the United States, the homicide rate fell by 20% and never rose again to the same level... And very quickly, China and and Russia,
7: please, to end. Sure.
11: Well, China is currently, as we speak, detaining half a million addicts in what are effectively gulags. Torture is absolutely widespread. They're forced labour camps... That's the face of the war on drugs in the largest country in the world. And what
7: about Russia, finally?
11: Well, Russia's following the Chinese model, absolutely, and it's the reason why Russia has the highest HIV rate, fastest rising HIV rate in the world, because when you crack down really hard on heroin addicts, they hide their needles, they throw them away and share them. The war on drugs is the biggest friend that the HIV virus ever had.
7: Johan, thank you.
3: Geoffrey Robertson and witnesses, thank you all very much indeed. I'm now going to invite Elliot Spitzer, the advocate against tonight's motion. It's time to end the war on drugs. Elliot, put your Thank witnesses. Thank you, Emily.
12: Let me invite uh, General McCaffrey up. General, you, just to set the stage and so everybody understands, not only we're general in the United States Army, which is not to continue the metaphor of war, but also we're in charge of drug policy during President Clinton, Clinton's presidency. Is that correct?
13: Yeah, and I've continued uh, since then being heavily involved in prevention primarily, but also drug and alcohol treatment programs throughout the United States. I tried to be supportive of the National Institute of Health research programs. I'm still very much engaged in the issue. Okay. Uh, uh, Governor Spitzer, if I can, let me just begin by complimenting uh, Antonio Maria Costa on his comments. They really summarize nicely what we're talking about. There's no reason for us to debate Uh, whether we're either going to prohibit uh, major drug cartels from murdering 60,000 Mexicans, or on the other hand, having effective prevention education programs, reducing the consumption of alcohol and illegal drugs by adolescents from the 6th to the 8th grade, and trying to deal rationally with a medical model on dealing with in the United States, 307 million of us, probably 16 million of us, have a chronic substance abuse program, uh, problem. So the underlined one data point we've got to get on the table. In the United States, which frequently we mention in this debate, we have reduced drug consumption by a third in the last uh, three decades. Uh, cocaine use is down by some 43%. Meth use has been cut in half. If you're in high-tech industry, in the armed forces, et cetera, we have minimal drug use. General, so let me... The bottom line is, what I support is prevention and education and effective drug treatment while remaining adamant that we will confront international crime and the production of drugs.
12: Look, General, you have given a stupendous summary of what the primary objectives are. And I just want to make it clear, when you listen to the powerful statements from Richard Branson and, and the others... We do not oppose any of what they were suggesting in terms of prevention, in terms of treatment. Do, you, do we in the United States send users to jail merely because they're users?
13: Look, I've been in half the jails and prisons in America. We have a disgracefully high incarceration rate, I might add, probably 2.1 million people behind bars. I'm heavily involved in the uh, inadequate treatment capacity we've built. We've got about 3.5 million people in treatment way under what the requirement is. But as a general statement, if I walked out the front door of this beautiful resort hotel smoking a doobie, it would be almost impossible to get arrested for God's sakes, never mind, prosecuted and jailed. You end up behind bars, I'd say eighty percent of the people behind bars have an alcohol or drug problem because I was breaking into your house or stealing your car, or doing male street prostitution. In fact, people behind bars are not arrested and jailed for possession of two joints.
12: So, so just so it is clear and time is short, we have to apportion among many witnesses, and I, I have spent many years as a prosecutor and the governor of a state overseeing a huge prison system. We do not incarcerate just for use. It is the violence that attends that, that use that sends people to jail. We treat users. Is that correct?
13: Without question. Again, you know, I go back to real world law enforcement, prosecutors, jailed. That isn't the problem. The problem with heroin and methamphetamines and oral hypnol isn't whether they're legal or illegal, it's that they're ferociously addictive. And you end up with medical, social, work related problems. Uh, you end up chronically addicted then your life is abject misery.
12: Okay, General. We're going
13: to get you in recovery, and we know how to do it.
12: General, I'm going to come back to you in the subsequent chapters here. We're going to pursue in particular why, and we will not use the metaphor of the war. It is the wrong metaphor. We do not disagree with you, Richard, about prevention and dealing with users. We're going to come back to kids in particular. Ed Villamy, I want to ask you if, since the topic of the first chapter was the cartels, what, in your view, would be the single best way to go right at the bloodstream of those cartels?
14: The one thing which stands a chance of throttling uh, the whole, all the misery that's been uh, discussed on both sides of this argument. You stop the swill of blood money from the cartels. And how do you do gratefully it? Gratefully received by the real cartel, which is the international banking system.
12: And how do you do it? Uh,
14: Antonio Maria Costa has referred to the uh, Wacovia case. It was a rare glimpse of how all this works. $110 million, small change. That's just that that was direct uh, drug money. $376 billion, medium-sized bank, four years, a lot of money. Uh, improperly, improperly uh, 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 taken, not from a banking system in Mexico, but little holes in the wall. Casas de cambio, they're called. Nobody goes to jail. They get a gentle rap on the knuckles. They're in the clear. Okay, so a you stop that. If this thing didn't make any money for anybody, whether it's the Ed, cartels now clock or is the run pharmaceutical down. I'm companies gonna... that uh, uh, will take it over if the other side wins this argument, then it's not going to work. You throttle the money. Go after the money. We want to see the rattle My own of the handcuffs won't to me. in the boardroom and the and the bankers
12: in the cells, not the poor. Addicts. All right, stop. Stop right there. All right, listen. Stop. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> We got to turn off the spigot of blood money, and we have lousy prosecutors who have no backbone who aren't doing it. But if we legalized these drugs, which is what they're saying, what would happen to consumption?
14: You'll get your chance, sir. What we have is a political class which is prostituted to the banking system and doesn't have the guts to take on. All right, but we can uh, stop the
12: blood. All right, now let's come back to Portugal. Uh, Ted, Ted, hold on one second. Ted, I want to come to you. Give us your credentials for a second. Ed, we'll be back.
15: Well, first of all, I'm a doctor, and I worked in a prison for many years and in a, uh, in a hospital in a poor area
12: of a British city. And tell us what the lesson of Portugal really is.
15: Well, it's difficult to say what the lesson is. First of all, the war on drugs in Portugal, if that's what the metaphor you, that you want to use, and I think it's an absurd metaphor. as always. We all agree one, on that. Yeah. Um, uh, the first thing is it hasn't stopped because it's not legal to distribute drugs. It's not legal to import them or produce them. That's the first thing. So they've only legalised a small amount of uh, possession of a small amount. Actually, the crime rate has increased. It's not true that breaking and entering has reduced. It's actually increased slightly. I'm not saying it's increased because of it, but it is not true that the relationship between crime and drugs is as simple as uh, presented.
12: All right, now, we're going to come back to you also later because this issue of Portugal is critically important in terms of learning the lessons, but I want to go to Sandeep Chawla, who is also from the UN. Sandeep, let me ask you this. You have studied drug issues. You're up there on the hangout. Where are you, up there? No, that's General McCaffrey. Sandeep, answer this question for me. If we were to increase the access to drugs, do you think that use would go up or go down? I I think use would definitely go up,
16: as would public health costs. And so if while use... crime rates may come down, public health costs and use would definitely go up. You've had the evidence of alcohol and tobacco. You can have it again for many other substances like this where use would go up. So what we are looking to do here is we do not need to stop the war on drug cartels and traffickers, but we do need to stop the war on drug users and we need to treat them.
12: So we all agree on that, and everybody on both sides of this has agreed we need to treat those who are users, but continue the prosecution of those who distribute and grow. And you just said if use goes up when you decriminalize, does that mean addiction among kids would go up as well?
16: If that's a question to me,
12: yes, yes, I, I think it probably
16: would, because all the evidence tells us that the largest amount of experimentation with substance use, with substance abuse, with psychoactive drugs is with people in their younger ages. And as you get older, the tendency to reduce consumption, call it an age containment effect if you like, tends to happen. So there is a greater tendency in the young years to experiment more with substances. So it's likely that any kind of easing in availability will increase
12: use levels, particularly among young people. Thank you, sir. So if there's one imperative here, which is to make sure kids do not become addicts, then making it easier to get access to drugs, just as was the case with tobacco and alcohol, we will have more kids who are addicts. Is that correct?
16: Yes, I think it's probably likely that that is the case. And every other attempt to find analogies, for instance any kind of system in which you would regulate the use of the currently illicit drugs and remove prohibition. There are several countries in the world, for instance, the United States at the moment, which have an upcoming epidemic with prescription pharmaceutical drugs. And these are already regulated and controlled, and yet there's an epidemic with them. So it's perfectly likely that you make availability easy, you regulate it lightly and use will go up just the way as it has done with alcohol and tobacco over the years. And now we are trying to stop the prescription drug epidemic. We are trying to develop grassroots movements against tobacco consumption. Do we really want to set the clock back and try and lighten the regulation we have on these drugs? I think the trick is to do both public health and prohibition together. And I think the trick is to remember the fact that we have in 50 years made mistakes because we put law enforcement Sun- and Sandeep, prohibition we must uh, on the top. We forgot about public health.
12: Our, so our time is up. Our together. time is up. We don't want to overrun. Thank you, sir. That was a perfect answer. I appreciate
3: it. Thank you very much. Um, And thanks to all the witnesses. We come into a slightly more um, freewheeling point in the debate uh, when voice from the panel and the audience can join uh, the debate. And I'm going to start off, I know we lose Russell Brand uh, very shortly, so perhaps we should just take uh, a response uh, to you. First of all, Russell Brand, you heard from Sandeep Chala there that drug use would go up as a result of an end to the war on drugs. Uh, can well, you?
9: Yes, I suppose it's kind of obvious that if something is more freely available, more people would do it. If we all lived in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, perhaps <laughs> we would eat more chocolate. But what I'm saying is the, the situation they're describing is the one that currently exists. There is already uh, prohibition against drugs, and it candidly, palpably, obviously isn't working and also there's no problem with taking people taking drugs if they're not drug addicts if people don't have a drug problem let them take drugs the problem is some people have defective personalities like me but if they take drugs it's problematic and if we criminalize them it's the wrong cultural model we need to treat people. As if, like the, that's why the crime happened. That geezer there that said if he, he could wander out of his building smoking a doobie, though that was the most preposterous image of the many <laughs> lunatic images that have been presented. Like, yeah, of course that's no problem for people who innocently walk around smoking a doobie. That's not creating a problem. But once people are addicted to marijuana or any drug, then we need to have an infrastructure that protects those people. And if we fundamentally categorise those people as criminals, that's the wrong way of addressing it. Eliot Spitzer can make an argument for anything. He's a brilliant, articulate and wonderful man. He should still be the governor of New York. But the simple fact is, is we need to treat these people, a uh, uh, category within which I'm included, as sick not as criminals, and then they can have treatment and help. It's the wrong social model. It's the wrong mindset. We need to approach people altruistically and lovingly, not treat them as criminals, because the inevitable social and criminal problems that come from drug use are as a result of its criminalisation. That's the problem.
3: Russell Brown, thanks very much. Let's take a question from the front row. Uh, Peter Hitchens, you had your hand up.
17: Before he goes, I'd I like to ask the alleged comedian in the hat uh, whether he whether – well, I, no, we've had a lot of him, uh, and far too, far too much for me, but he says he's not responsible for his own drug taking. Isn't the problem with the Western countries that we repeatedly say, oh, we're not responsible, when we take drugs, oh, we do it because we're made to, somebody made me do it, when in fact it's a pleasure that we seek, people do it because they want to, they do it for a pleasure, and then – As a result of the demand, which is quite rightly mentioned by the President of Colombia at the beginning of this, the demand which drives the supply, then ruin and murder and warfare and bloodshed and all the other evils descend on the countries which supply. It all comes from us. It comes from rich Western kids selfishly following their pleasures and, and and creating a worldwide industry and a huge flow of money which is disastrous for the entire globe. And we don't ever address it.
3: Um, Russell Brand, I'll I'll let you have a quick right to reply. I think you're being called a selfish kid there. He
17: certainly is.
3: (laughs) It's nice to receive your bigotry from another medium
9: other than the hate rag, the mail on Sunday, through which you normally peddle hatred, insular thought, lack of love between human beings. Have an argument for a moment, would you? Whether or not I'm selfish or wearing a hat, is redundant and irrelevant. These are the kind of personal attacks, the aggressive starts that you continually adopt to vilify people needlessly. What's next? Criminalise being a bit brown? Is that your next policy from the Mail on Sunday? We can't listen to people like you anymore. It's evolved
17: as a species. That's an idiotic slur. And I notice you don't actually answer my argument. Are you responsible for your actions or are you not? Do you take drugs there because you a have a to, to or because society, you want to? Peter,
9: in spite of what Margaret Thatcher said, there is such a thing as society. We are responsible for one another. If we treat people compassionately for your and with own love, actions. then people will benefit. Mister, people, of course, are responsible
18: for their actions.
9: The You're responsible for writing for a bigoted newspaper. Finish your joke, Russell Brand.
18: I'm for- <laughs> responsible for your own actions.
3: Okay, I'm going to move the debate on because there's a lot of people that uh, we'd like to get questions from and responses. Um, Richard Branson, just uh, the point that Theodore Dalrymple made, which was that crime rate has actually increased in a country like Portugal uh, which has decriminalised some kinds of drugs. What would you make of that?
8: Well, all I can say is I went to Portugal uh, on behalf of the Global Drug Commission. I I met the uh, head of the health programme who Oversees the the whole programme in Portugal, um, and looked at all the statistics. And uh, in in pretty well every every single statistic that I saw, I mean, crime crime seemed to have reduced dramatically. and, um, uh, And. and, and, and that, that's, that, those were the figures that the Commission got, and those were the figures... Sorry.
11: And Sorry, you don't have to take the word of legalizers or decriminalisers like us. While Figuera, the chief inspector of the Lisbon Drugs Unit, who was a sceptic, who opposed this law, who was on your side, said earlier this year to Fox News, not an institution sympathetic to us, the levels of conflicts on the street are down. Drug-related robberies are down. And now the police are not the enemy of the consumers. It's really important to bear in mind, virtually no-one in Portugal wants to go back.
8: Can I just just add one quick one? And that is very... Just look at the logic of it. Somebody uh, has a heroin problem, and the state just says, we will supply methadone and we will supply your needles. You don't need to go and break and enter anymore because we will make sure that we help you until we manage to get you off this problem then, therefore, why would they still be breaking and entering if the state are helping them? OK,
3: next? Theodore, Ripple, uh, last, last word on this, and then we have to move on. Well,
15: first of all, I, I refer to Eurostat, which says that the uh, crime rate has actually increased slightly. The relationship between heroin, for example, is much more, and crime is much more complex than uh, Richard Branson is saying. Uh, In my prison, for example, I discovered that the vast... And I'm not the first person to notice this. The relationship between crime and heroin was exactly the opposite of what one supposes. That actually, the vast majority of heroin addicts who end up in prison have committed between 50 and 200 criminal acts before they ever took heroin. In other words, whatever it is that causes people to become uh, criminal... also causes them to become uh, become, uh, addicts. And if you think that we have areas in this country with 40% of youth unemployment, 20% of our children are coming out of schools barely literate, 33% of our children or more never eat a meal at a a table with anybody else in their household... These are the perfect conditions for the spread of uh, drugs if availability is increased.
3: Uh, thank you very much indeed. We're, um, we're starting to creep onto territory that belongs in the second act. Uh, so I'm going to take us onto that. But before we do, over to the orators uh, to tell us what they have learnt from this act. First, uh, back to you, Misha.
5: Well, I've learnt, first of all, that the opposition is not prepared to debate the subject under consideration. Let's end the war on drugs. Uh, They're doing some fancy footwork to try and do it. They're trying to associate themselves with the Occupy movement and the 99% against the 1%, a few populist arguments about banks and so on and so forth. But I have to challenge... Eliot Spitzer and General McCaffrey. I challenge you to go to Harlem. I challenge you to go to Southside Chicago and stand in front of the African-American community there and say that America does not incarcerate uh, people for nonviolent drug offences. Because... The number of people arrested in 2009 on nonviolent uh, drug offenses was 1,600,000. And if you'd like to come to, if you'd like to come to Albany with me, I'll introduce you to a former colleague of yours, David Saws, and we'll take you around the projects, like he took me around the projects, to show which African Americans have been put in prison for the fact that they have taken drugs without violence. This is an appalling argument, and one which I think has to be highlighted. This war targets the people who are least able to defend themselves in society, and it must stop.
3: Misha, thanks very much indeed. And Maria Costa, to you.
12: Misha, since you challenged me directly, I'm going to steal 15 seconds from my colleague as the former attorney general a prosecutor the governor of that state, I not only accept your challenge, you are dead wrong, sir. If you looked at the data, instead of just experiential standing on a street corner, you would understand this issue. Those of us who have presided over changing the laws of that state know exactly why people go to jail. You just heard it from Ted. It's because of the violence that attends to those crimes. You sit down with the DAs across the state, the defense attorneys. Your data is dead wrong. You can stand on any street corner you want. I've been in the trenches doing it. That's the data we want. The data. Okay. The data, uh, is, on two twice, the data course, is in the New York Times. Right. Six million, million arrested on
7: non
3: drug drugs. We can take this into the next charges. act. Uh, Antonio, I'm sorry, they've all eaten into your time. Uh, you have 50 no, seconds exactly. left to tell us what you, as the orator, uh, have learned from this act.
6: I am sorry, I did not accept that bullying. Okay. Uh, Misha and the US party said, stop the war on drugs. I say, stop all drug wars. And let me explain. The people at this table represent 10% of humanity. And we propose drug policy for the world, forgetting drugs, crime that we perpetrated. You see, in 2012, we celebrate a dreadful anniversary. One that makes my guts twist and turn. 150 years from the end of the Opium Wars, when the West... Our countries forced China to consume drugs. At that time, just like now, greedy investors, it was the East India Company, as you recall, wanted to make money by poisoning the Chinese with opium. China opposed this. Our countries went to war our countries won the war and forced the Chinese to consume drugs for a century. Tens of millions of people died in China for addiction, war, and famine. The tragedy of drug legalization we force on China dwarfs what's happening in Mexico, in Guatemala, in Colombia, etc. To conclude, when I hear investors in Europe and North America advocating drug legalization, behind the fig leaves of a campaign to stop the war on drugs, I cringe and I say, stop all drugs wars, whether fought by bullets or by bonds. Investors' greed can be as harmful as mafia's guns. Drugs have come from both sides of the aisle. Therefore, vote no and vote against this motion. Thank you very much.
3: Antonio Maria Costa, thank you very much indeed. That brings us to the end of Act One. Thanks to all our witnesses for that. We're going to have uh, a short change of cast now, where we're going to ask uh, some new members to join me up on the panel. And uh, if you could just welcome now our witnesses for Act 2. Theodore, you're staying with me. Uh, Joined by Ian Blair, who will uh, come up and join us here. Thanks very much, Ian. Nigel Keegan and Neil McKegney on my left. And joining Richard Branson uh, is Bernard Kushner, uh, former Foreign Secretary of France, uh, Louise Arbour from the UN, and Steve Rolls. Uh, If you could all take your places just beside me. Uh, Bernard, you're next to Richard. Louise, you're next to Bernard. I'm with uh... this time, the question we're asking or posing is this: It's cheaper, it's more effective, and it is kinder to treat drug abuse as a public health problem rather than a crime. First of all, we're going to hear from Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the former president of Brazil, who's going to make a brief statement.
19: Well, thank you very much. I was uh, paying attention to the previous discussion, and I was surprised, because in our case in Latin America, when we start to discuss the question of drugs, some former presidents in Latin America, one from Colombia, President Gaviria, another from Mexico, President Cedillo, and myself from Brazil, we had in our mind. The idea that the war on drugs was not a concept, was not a discussion, a theoretical discussion was a, a matter of fact. People have been uh, killed because of that massively. And the results were very bad, a kind of complete failure in the sense that it was impossible to control cartels, as President Santos from Colombia just said before me. So for us, this is not a, a theoretical a, a case, it's a, it's a practical question. And it relates to democracy because a lot of democracy is being undermined by the existence of powerful cartels. And these cartels are also in, in, in struggle. And the point is that in some cases, like in Mexico, they are being armored because in the United States it's possible to, to buy armament, buy free. And then they came to Mexico and different groups or different gangs that are, are killing each other. So it's, it's a practical uh, situation. Secondly, we are facing a situation of poverty, not just in in the country I mentioned already, but also in Africa, mainly in the western part of of Africa. Again, the cartels are taking a a large uh, part of the power system, you know, influencing through corruption and dismantling the authority in these areas. So for us, there is a war in process, and this war has been up to today a failure. You have to to try to to look after different approaches. That's why President Santos is asking in just now, again, we have a a, a summit of the Americas, composed by by president, to discuss what the options are. In the case of our commission, the the so-called Global Commission on Drug Policy, and I'm the the head of this uh, commission. This is is a commission that we create after the Latin American commission. In our commission, we have some consensus. See, simple concerns. First is to end the criminalization of people who use drugs and do not harm others. Maybe this is uh, I, I, what I heard up to now was this is almost consensual. But in practice, not like that. In practice, the truth is that people are being put in jail just because they are using drugs. Senor so, I'm,
3: drugs. I'm just going to ask you to wrap up, uh, if you can, the next 20 or so
19: seconds. Yeah, so the second... The uh, uh, main objective is to explore models of legal and social regulation of drugs, kind of drugs like marijuana, which are less harmful than tobacco and uh, alcohol. And what has been said about Portugal is absolutely true. I has been there. We made a film, a documentary, showing different situations. It, it is true that in Portugal, uh, the Portuguese are reducing the use of, of, of drugs, Exactly because they decriminalize, they they also are keeping some penalization, but not through the judicial system. And the point is that in Portugal, they are being successful in reducing the um, amount of those who are using drugs. So I think it's important to ask again and again the question with an open eye.
3: Thank you very much indeed, Uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the former president of Brazil. Great to have you with us. Well, this time it is, Elliot Spitzer, your turn to start the questioning.
12: Thank you, Emily. General McCaffrey, I want to go back to you on a critical issue here, and I think Russell Brand made some very powerful points about... The way we as a society should embrace those who have a drug problem, we should not deem them criminals, we should not ostracize them, we need to help them and treat them. But the question I've got for you is, can you in fact create a regime of treatment if you do not have the potential of coercive threats behind you, such as the potential prosecution of those who are in fact addicts?
13: Well, you know, uh, actually, Russell Brand made a a very powerful point. He talked about a defective personality he thinks he has, which I won't argue with. But uh, (laughs) one of the challenges is that if you use methamphetamine, if you use heroin, the Cadillac of all drugs, you're going to like it. And a very high percentage of us will then become chronically addicted, and we're a disaster to our families, our employers, the communities we live in. Now, one of the things we've done here in the United States, which I would commend to further study, is we tried to tie together rational drug policy in the criminal justice system. We have the drug court system. Uh, We started with a dozen. I got it up to around 1,000 while I was in public life with the Clinton administration. We're now around 3,000. If you're arrested on Monday night for breaking and entering, you're a chronic heroin addict. We put you in treatment we drug test you, a year later, 80 percent likely you'll have markedly changed your drug-taking behavior. Notice I didn't say cure. So I do think that uh, the drug court system is something that needs to be looked at by the other participants.
12: And General, just not to put too fine a point on it, though, I want to come back to the importance of having that coercive pressure of a judicial system as part of the opportunity to impose treatment upon the individual who is either an addict or a potential addict. Is that what you're saying?
13: Yeah, sure. And by the way, coercive means family intervention with your employer on a confrontation to get you into treatment. Uh, coercion means in the drug treatment facilities we use, yes, methadone's essential for heroin and synthetic opiate addiction, which also have counseling where you know, we try and do reward and punishment to get people's lives stabilized uh... we should have a tremendous sense of compassion in the united states for the sixteen million of us who are chronically addicted to poly drug abuse alcohol and illegal drugs and the way out clearly is treatment but you've got to continue to have high levels of social stigma and part of that is drugs should be illegal
12: general very quickly because again i'm trying to reach a whole number of witnesses here in this brief segment the issue of whether or not it has been effective, and again, I don't want to use the metaphor of the war, do you look to certain measures, certain indicia of declining drug use that for you say, you know what, the entire totality of the policies we've got right now somehow are productive and are working?
13: Well, you know, I, frequently I get, you know, unsettle some of my European colleagues and I tell people the crime rate in the United States in the last 30 years has gone down dramatically. If we weren't all carrying guns, half of us, and 5% of us are nutcakes, our homicide rate would also follow. But as a general statement, um, our crime rates down enormously. Teenage uh, pregnancy down enormously. Drug use down enormously. Uh, We're actually on a pretty good track. Uh, Now, the one thing I think we have inadequately done is uh, dealt with the world community with money laundering uh, Keeping guns out of Mexico, President Vincente Fox has every reason, along with the current President Calderon, to be dissatisfied with the level of effort out of the United States. Uh, but again, look, the problem with drug addiction isn't legality or illegality it's the misery that it brings to the chronically addicted.
12: All right. General, thank you so much. I'm going to turn to Nigel Keenan now. Nigel, why do you understand this stuff? What are your credentials? Real quick. The well, clock I'm a runs.
20: doctor and an investment banker, so hopefully I understand the medicine and the numbers. And um, I'd just like to say something to Richard and the other people who have spoken about Portugal. Eurostat's statistics in focus bulletin says that crime in Portugal is up by 17% since 2001, and it also says that the murder rate is up by 40% since 2001. Can, can I
12: interrupt? When, 2001 is what happened in 2001?
20: 2001 is when um, drugs were decriminalised. That's when their policy went, went into effect? use, yes. Okay. And, and the, the European Monitoring Centre for Drugs and Drugs Addiction, which is actually headquartered in Lisbon, and whose chairman is exactly the same person that Richard spoke to, says that drug use has gone up across all categories since 2001, and the number of problem drug users is exactly the same today as it was in 2001. It is their story. No significant difference. All they've done is succeeded in getting 30,000 people hooked on methadone as well as heroin with absolutely no plan to get them off.
12: Very quickly, is there a story in the Netherlands? Now, you're a doctor and an investment banker?
20: Uh, yes, yeah, an investment banker too. And I, We I, like half of it. I, 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 and I, I, well, I'm just checking that Russell's gone away because he definitely doesn't like investment bankers. But I, I, I'd like to just address um, something that Antonio said as well and that is that pharmaceutical companies... And I've covered the pharmaceutical sector for 15 years, and I've been broker to GlaxoSmithKline. And I'm not saying that they're interested in this sector themselves, but other drug companies definitely are. Kaiser makes half a billion dollars profit a year from one particular drug, Suboxone, which is used as um, a heroin substitute in the United States. And it's got the highest margins that I've ever seen, including cancer drugs or anything else. Um, Investors would definitely be um, interested in this area if Misha succeeds in getting drugs legalised. And if he doesn't want drugs legalised, I'd like to know exactly how he defines the end of the war on
12: drugs... I've okay. got to stop there. We're going to continue this. And Lord Blair, and, I, and you know, I'm from the other side of the ocean, this Lord stuff kind of gives me the quivers, but you're a Lord, and uh, you were also the Commissioner of Scotland Yard. You're supposed to know something about this stuff, right?
21: Governor, I was a, as a cop for 35 years. I was the head of Scotland Yard, and I've stood in more uh, crack dens than
12: I care to remember. All right. Cop I can relate to, Lord not so much. Okay, what's your take on all this? I mean, well, my, my, take,
21: my take on this is Winston Churchill. Remember, Winston Churchill, he was not the man who won the Second World War. He was the man who didn't lose it. And the argument for the legalisers is really this. What they are proposing is a probably irreversible experiment with at least the possibility of total catastrophe. We have no idea what a totally legalised drug world would look like. The only two places that are being put forward at the moment are Portugal and and Western Australia. They are small, isolated countries. If the United States, the United Kingdom, France, (laughs) India, utterly legalised drugs, then we have no idea what that would look like. We have no idea what effect that would have on children and young people. But we've got some clues from the past. We know what 19th-century opium dens were like, and they were appalling. And if I can just take you to one class of people, and we've heard a representative of them today, which is the people who are effectively beyond the law in relation to this, which is celebrities and pop stars, and just look at those histories. From Jimi Hendrix to Amy Winehouse, from Keith Moon through Heath Ledger to Michael Jackson, people cannot withstand this level of ability to take drugs. 90% of people don't take drugs because it is illegal.
12: That L- is the L- Lord component. Blair, I'm being polite to you to try to interrupt you. Simple question, short answer. If sanctions were lifted, would use increase? Massively. All right, thank you, sir. I want to go now to Neil McGennady. Neil, I want to come back to Portugal. You've studied this a great length. What is your takeaway on Portugal?
22: Well, there's been, I think, some misleading statistics presented tonight which give the impression that Portugal is a a rose garden. That is not the case. We are seeing now a steady increase in some of the indices of harm. Um, But I think I'd like to also say that, you know, there is no country in the world, that is no country, not even a single country, that does not have a drug policy comprising three things. That is treatment, prevention and enforcement and, and it's easy to say I prefer treatment in all of that because it looks nice it's cosy and I would, li- I would like my loved ones to get that treatment but you know drug policy is a three-legged stool and you saw away at one of those legs and you can, and you can predict what the consequence is going to be. Now we need effective treatment, we need effective prevention but we need effective enforcement as well and the research which I and colleagues in Glasgow have carried out shows that if you have effective enforcement, that often is a catalyst, a powerful catalyst to get people into treatment. So it's completely misplaced to play off treatment as against enforcement. It would be absolutely crazy in the face of this global problem to take away one of the strands of our, of our prevention, enforcement, and
12: treatment. Neil, we literally have 15 seconds left. I'm not going to get to TED. I apologize. We'll keep you there for the next round. But, Neil, let me ask you this. If there were some regime of legalization, regulation, call it whatever the good folks on the other side want to call it, and you created a profit motive. So you had Glaxo, Pfizer... Philip Morris promoting use of drugs would use go up or down
22: well of course it would go up there's absolutely no question about that these are companies that are absolutely perfect marketing devices and you put drugs into that mix and you will unquestionably see the most smart the most well-financed advertising campaigns and you will see a steady increase in the level the of s- drugs way beyond the 1% the
12: same of the- way the tobacco companies have killed millions of kids for money is that what yes, we're talking you will,
22: about you will see cocaine and heroin looking like tobacco and alcohol. And the consequences of that are beyond imagination, thank you, given sir. the level of addiction of these substances.
12: Thank you, sir.
1: Elliot and witnesses, thank you very much indeed. Listeners to the Intelligence Squared podcast are eligible for a special offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own website and online shop. The easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs and 24-7 customer support teams means you can create a beautiful designed website for as little as £5 a month. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code INTELLIGENCE to get 10% off your first purchase.
3: Over to you, Geoffrey. It's your turn.
7: Let's talk about how the war on drugs has become a war on drug takers. Louise Arbour, you have been... Uh, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, you've run international chief prosecutor at international criminal courts, the kind that go after Milosevic and Joseph Kony. Uh, What do you, what's your take on the war on drugs? What does the language tell you?
23: Well, actually, I have prosecuted real war criminals. um, And this, uh, this is a made up war. I think it's absolutely clear. It looks very real because it's now fought in many countries as a real war. But the rhetoric, I think, of the the war on drug discloses, I think, uh, a completely uh, failed policy. If you have a war, presumably, at some point, you should be able to determine that you've won it. (laughs) It has to be some kind of exit strategy. When is it going to be won, this 50-year-old war? When we have a drug-free world? That's not going to happen in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime or in my grandchildren's lifetime. And does it the not notion
7: happen? that it's a war give the police uh, a kind of license to go after oh, people? Of course, of
23: course. This all this rhetoric, uh, you know, in war times you can have emergency measures and all kinds of... Uh, extraordinary law enforcement powers and uh, we all rally and of course there're two sides so the other side are the bad guys these mm-hmm. terrible people it's it's a the rhetoric i think cannot be underestimated but it seems to me that what we also have to to recognize is that it's an objective that is unattainable people there is a gigantic appetite for all kinds of psychoactive substances alcohol tobacco use of prescription drugs, this is their... I don't think we need to make the case that we will eliminate that. But
7: you've heard their argument. Uh, their argument is, oh, you need these laws, you need the threat of prison stigma in order to make treatment work. Uh, as a former chief prosecutor, does that argument work with you?
23: Well, first of all, you don't need to treat everybody. Not everybody is an alcoholic. A lot of people have a drink. Uh, not everybody is an addict. Those who are are in very profound distress... And to link them to this criminal underworld, it seems to me, only adds to their predicaments. Completely wrong. So you can't make the argument that you need both treatment and the big stick of imprisonment. You have to Because
7: does, he re- does arrest, does putting them in the process itself, dangerous? Yes. And
23: actually, let me take on people in jail. Excuse I won't me. speak for America. I come from Canada. I've been a judge in Canada for 15 years. They're not all in there for violent crimes and happen to be drug users. If that was the case, we could abolish the offence of possession of narcotics, possession for the purpose of trafficking, and trafficking. Mm -hmm. We'd catch them all for these so-called violent crimes for which... And finally, sorry,
7: I think, sorry. as the result of the war on drugs, we have a number of countries, 22, that actually execute people for possession and well, carrying of drugs. that's
23: the ultimate. We
7: I have think. Iran, we have Singapore. If you've got 200 grams of cannabis, you swing. Well, uh, well, I
23: hope we'll have another debate one day on the use of the death penalty at large, but particularly for... Uh, drug offences, even mega-trafficking. It is, even in international law which tolerates the death penalty, to use it for drug offences is totally contrary to the, the principles of international law.
7: Mm-hmm. Let me move to Bernard Kushner. You're a doctor. You were the founder of Médecins Sans Frontières. You've been the health minister of France, the foreign minister of France. How does it stack up for you? Is there anything in this idea that we need to be penal in order to get people into treatment?
18: Well, certainly. But first, I believe very clearly for everybody, should be the same. We have lost the war on drugs. Otherwise, we have to wait for one century more. We have lost the war. It was not effective. The drug consumers are more numerous and the consumption is higher. So we have lost. But if we were talking about public health, because it was an argument on both sides, public health... I believe that it is not the right place, a prison, a jail, to treat, to take care of the people. It's better to prevent. How do you prevent drug consumption? This is a sociological, a political, and a psychosociological psycho problem. Okay. So this is very difficult. Poverty, we were talking about. It's completely true. And lack of ideal. So they are transgressing uh, the law. So we do we have to reinforce the law just to force the young guys to respect that? This is impossible. Look, history has no memory, but we were acting the same way against alcohol and against tobacco. So what was the result? First, the... The, the alcohol consumers were not so high after the end of prohibition, but meanwhile we had to reinforce the mafia, and we did. We had Al Capone, etc. And it was a stupid war. Okay, tobacco. It has taken 40 years to convince, and you were right, governor, about the tobacco firms. But well, now we have an experience, and so it must be under the control of a state, a government control.
7: Government are, control. Absolutely. So, ending the war on drugs doesn't mean open slather, it doesn't mean legalisation, it doesn't mean to opinion, big drum no. companies, it means nationalisation, it could mean nationalisation. It
18: must be no, a or restriction, or regulation. A regulation, like we did with alcohol, like we did with to tobacco. It's impossible to smoke in a public place, it's impossible to drag if you are a certain percentage of, um, of alcohol in the blood, etc. The same thing, this is the first step. After... For uh, legalization, we'll see. But regulation, mm-hmm. it will def- to, to, to get confidence, to, to, be, to be, let's say, in position to talk to the people we have to inform to inform to inform and to educate that is to say at school primary school secondary school to talk about the problem of drugs or not but don't please stop I and mean, forbid to all everybody to take any psycho stimulant if i may is say. there a this right is, is a
7: there f- a right do you think a okay, human right give to us take
18: for example to, to bypass the, the, at, in the same time the risk and the transgression people are not uh, robot. So let them talk with uh, the educators and sometimes the doctors and sometimes the lawyers.
7: Right. I'll talk to Steve Rolls. I'll bring you in. What do you make of this idea that if you end the war on drugs, you have suddenly all the big drug companies coming in?
24: Well, I mean, what, what, what would happen? We're, we're talking about moving from a, a criminal sphere into a sphere of government, potentially government regulation, which can be as strict or as, uh, as relaxed as we would want it to be. It's effectively a blank slate. So, you know, the, the idea that, uh, that, that big pharmaceutical companies would take over these things and aggressively market them is, you know, that, that, that's, I think that's wishful we're thinking. We can be as, as strict or, and as... Uh, Tighten our regulations as, as we want to be. Have they we're, done we're, that
7: in Portugal? Have they done it in well, no, Amsterdam? They they've,
24: they've only decriminalised use in Portugal. They're, they're not talking about actually regulated markets. But if we do go in that, in that direction, and I, I think certainly we should. Um, you, you, you get to a place where you can regulate all the different aspects of the market. You can regulate the products, you can regulate the vendors, they can be licensed and vetted and so on. So you, you can, can, can have, for the, example, the can can small amounts of
7: cannabis available only in licensed premises yes, you to can have persons can, over 18. Yes,
24: I mean, a lot of, a lot of the, 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 the uh, opposition have talked about uh, free availability. We're not talking about free availability. We're talking about controlled availability, and that, that level of control can be as strict as we want it to be.
7: And there'd still be severe penalties for anyone who sold yes, a drug you, to a child absolutely. or whatever. If you, if
24: you have a regulatory framework, anyone who steps outside it is still subject to sanctions. And, you know, yes, big pharma may not be uh, 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 ideal, but big pharma is certainly better than big gangster, and that's what we have now. And we, we, need to, we need to move towards a situation where we can regulate and control and intervene in the market in ways that can reduce the harm it causes. At the moment, we can't make any interventions at all.
7: Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we've got David Eagleman on uh, hanging out. Hi, David. You're Hello, Jeffrey. one of our top neuroscientists. Tell me what neuroscience is discovering about addiction.
25: Well, what's clear is the reason that we're losing the war on drugs is because we're attacking supply, and that's like a water balloon. If you press it down in one place, it comes up somewhere else. What we need to be addressing is demand, and that is the brain of the addict. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we know a great deal about the circuitry and pharmacology of the addict's brain. Mm-hmm. And we're developing and in what neuroscience. Does neuro, what does neuroscience ways.
7: have in store for curing addiction?
25: There are at least three different ways that are being worked on. Um, there are familiar pharmaceutical treatments that obstruct the effect of the drug, thereby blocking the high. Okay, you and block the are, high,
7: then the next one.
25: There are newer treatments. There's one uh, called a cocaine vaccine, which actually recruits the immune system to sop up the drug before it crosses so into you, the So you take
7: an injection and it stops your craving for cocaine? That's correct. It, it, broadly. And and
25: then there, Tell and us there about are, the third one. There are new methods we are working on that use real-time feedback with brain imaging. Essentially, it's like biofeedback, where we train up the frontal parts of the brain to exhibit more control over craving. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, we train a person how to deal with the craving, and this is useful for people who have tried to quit, know they would like to quit, but have been unsuccessful. So the addict, to put it
15: bluntly
7: or broadly, the addict can look at their own brain and watch themselves actually conquer the craving voluntarily. That's, That's, That's what neuroscience has in store. That's and, correct. And we know finally that there were forty billion dollars spent on the war on drugs in America last year. If that forty billion dollars were spent on neuroscience and its way of curing addiction, would we get that we cure a, pretty we, quickly?
25: We could do a great deal in neuroscience with that money.
7: Thank you.
3: <laughs> Thanks very much to, uh, to Jeffrey and the witnesses. Mm. And this is once again where we open up the debate, uh, allow a little bit more freewheeling thought and take some of your questions, both uh, from inside the room, we'll be sending round mics, uh, but first to Jemima, who's uh, hanging out and can tell us a little bit more about uh, the sort of things people are asking on the web. Jemima.
2: Hi, Emily. With regards to Act 2, the general view is overwhelmingly pro-liberalisation, which I suppose isn't a surprise given the vote. But the web's saying... Too much focus on hard drugs, keen for a debate on marijuana, Um, and the majority feel that marijuana should be legalised and that drug addiction is indeed a a health issue. Um, Lots of questions also about prescription drugs. I've got a question here from Kian O'Grady for Lord Blair, which is, Lord Blair mentioned celebrity drug overdoses, yet most of the recent celebrity drug deaths, indeed most of the names Lord Blair himself mentioned, were due to the abuse of legal drugs. How do you explain that? Um, let's, let, let's uh, if you want to respond yeah, to that, in
21: because they were illegally prescribed. I mean, that's exactly what happened in Michael Jackson's case. They were illegally uh, prescribed. It's just the same thing in a different guise.
3: Back to you, Jemima, I, for more I mean, questions. It,
2: I'll, I'll give you, I we've had so say. many questions. Um, uh, what another question here is just for anyone on the panel. Uh, a name that is not pronounceable on YouTube. What's the difference between a codeine addict and a heroin addict? If a doctor prescribes codeine and the patient becomes addicted, we help them. So why don't we do the same for heroin addicts?
3: Um, Let's take one more question and then we'll uh, put them to the panel.
2: And then this is the counter view from Jake Weiss. He said he addresses this to liberal people. He says... (laughs) Can you hear me? He says, if alcohol is more harmful than cannabis, instead of legalising cannabis, shouldn't we criminalise or restrict alcohol? (laughs) All
3: right, let me take that first one to Nigel Keegan. As a doctor, um, do you recognise the difference, Nigel, between a heroin addict and a codeine addict? Yes, I
20: I, I actually know quite a bit about codeine because um, I used to work for a company that marketed a drug called solpidine, which contained paracetamol, codeine and caffeine. Um, Codeine is actually a very similar drug to morphine. There's only one very small chemical difference. And I point out that it's a legal drug in this country. It's available over-the-counter, and it's regulated in exactly the same way Steve Rolls wants. But people still do get addicted to these drugs. They they used to get addicted to solpidine. They'd use it as a pick-me-up in the morning, and I think people should be helped. And I think heroin addicts should be helped too Uh, I just don't think they should be helped in the way they are in this country, which is essentially getting them hooked on methadone instead of, or as well as, heroin. I think we should should help them into residential rehabilitation, and we should help them stop taking drugs. In this country, we have 600,000 prescriptions a month for methadone. That's 150,000 addicts prescribed methadone every month. We have 4,000 places a year for residential rehabilitation. Um, I think the one needs to go down and the other needs to go up markedly.
3: Before we move on, are there any questions in the hall? Um, Just a a show of hands, if there are people here that would like to ask a question, we'll send a mic round. Catch my eye or catch the mics if there are. You, sir, just uh, halfway down here in the green T-shirt, if you can just get a mic to him. Um, Would anyone on the panel like to answer Jake's question that Jemima just posed? It was really a, a point of information, I guess.
8: I mean, the criminalising alcohol uh, question has um, it's been, it's been, it's been tried, and, um, uh, and I think it, it,
15: it, it
3: failed. So, um, would anyone Witt, on this side say that the prohibition worked?
15: Well, first of all, uh, people misstate the statistics about prohibition. You may be surprised to know that the rate of uh, increase in uh, uh, violent crime and murder increased uh, more in the 14 years before prohibition than uh, during the 14 years of prohibition. No one seems to take any notice of it, so there may be secular trends which have nothing to do with that. But if you take uh, something like, for example, drunken driving, we see that in France, for example, the 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 enforcement of the law, saves 3,000 lives in accidents a year, and the same thing has happened here. Now, it is true that people will eventually become accustomed to not drinking and driving, but you do need the sanction behind it. If you didn't have the sanction, do you seriously think that if there were no sanction against drunken driving, there would be fewer drunken drivers? It doesn't okay. make sense.
3: Okay, let's just go. Let's just go to you, sir, because uh, you had the mic, and I was going to come to you. Yeah, right.
22: Yeah, I'm just finding the, uh, the argument from the against side quite disingenuous when it comes to children. <coughs> Sorry, uh, Governor Spitzer um, said that uh, legalising would increase the number of child addicts, but th- there's no mention of. the of the numbers of children in Mexico and Colombia that are killed in drive-by shootings and abductions and things of that nature. So when we're talking about the body count and the consequences of these things, it's not as simple as saying, if we legalise it, then we'll have more addicts, and that's a bad thing, because the consequences of the criminalisation are just terrible.
3: Um, You you were name-checked. You you can pass it on to one of your team if you prefer.
12: Just very briefly, your point is, of course, extremely well taken. The horror of what is happening and the violence in certain communities attendant to the cartel power is heinous. It's one of the most horrifying stories one can read. However, that does not address the absolute stark methodological certainty of what we are saying, which is that if you permit greater access to cocaine, meth, heroin, there will be more kids who become addicts, and that will then set off a trend line, because we all know that those who become addicts before the age of 18 are the ones who are almost impossible to cure. So there are separable problems. We're, of course, recognizing the one you talk about, but you must recognize the one we're talking about.
3: Uh, Can I just add also
22: that... um, we have in this country an estimated 300,000 children with, with uh, addicted parents. Now, now, these children's lives are lost as dramatically and as tragically as those children that you just instanced. But they're not lost because uh, heroin is illegal. They're lost because their parents care more about the drugs they're using than the children they should be looking thank after. Neil, thanks you. And if much. you see I'm, I'm, that,
3: I'm that, just, that, that will increase. I'm going to give a, a right to reply to the other side because they haven't spoken on this. Thank one yet. you
18: very much. <laughs> but this... we were talking about poverty, this is not the subject, but poverty is a huge, very important part of the explanation. And the second is that the violence is coming out of the war in between the gangs, I mean, in between the NATO traffickers, and that's why, not with uh, legalization at the first stage, but certainly with regulation and control, it might be more difficult for the gangs from all the narco-traffickers to get money. And violence is partly because of their want to get money inside without job, without, because of unemployment, etc. This is also a, a political uh, problem and a political-economical economic pro- problem.
3: Okay. Uh, thanks very much indeed. We're going to move on to our orators now. Antonio, first of all, can you tell us what you feel you've learned <coughs> from this act?
6: Yes, indeed. I am happy to confirm that personally, institutionally, we ag- I agree that addiction is a health condition and addicts should be assisted in hospitals and not put in jails. In fact, uh, international agreements at the United Nations and elsewhere leave countries free to control drugs in the way they prefer. Decriminalization of use, which has been advocated for years, Has produced important results. Too bad that everybody here is referring to Portugal. It's the flavor of the month. Used to be the Netherlands and used to be Switzerland until their experiments crashed, and of course, they disappear from the radar screen. But don't be misled Portugal has not decriminalized supply. Portugal is uh, indeed a constraining supply the way all other countries do. And indeed, as it was said, erroneously, uh, crime has not declined, crime in uh, Portugal has exploded, but there have been here attempts to falsify the information. Now, the problem with the supporter of the motions tonight is the focus uh, they place on supply. In a cunning way, they propose switching supply from mafias to venture capitalists or pharmaceutical companies. Is this desirable? What's the advantage? Ian Blair called it an unmitigated disaster. We will only succeed if we focus on demand, not on supply. Preventing it, treating it, and integrating the addicts. The tobacco example is a devastating demonstration that regulation, I hear so much about regulation, I don't even know what that means, that regulation failed for addictive substances, and we have five million people killed by tobacco every year. I really wish humanity would be careful about causing similar killing fields because of legalization or regulated drugs.
3: Thank you. Antonio, thank you very much indeed. Commissioner.
5: Well, uh, Eliot Spitzer and Neil gave us the answer about what's really going on here. They talked about the need for co- coercive force against addicts. So this idea that they don't want to fight the war on drugs is actually not true. They want to have the option of putting people uh, in prison, despite the fact that they were denying that earlier on. Well, let's talk about regulation. Uh, Lord Blair will know very well about the proliferation of marijuana farms all over the United Kingdom, and because of advanced horticultural techniques, the ability of those farmers to produce skunk which have astronomically high THC levels in them. If you have regulation, what you can do is you can say there is a law which will not permit you to produce anything like those THC levels, uh, uh, THC levels in uh, cannabis. So One of the things I I, I want to say is is that these days we will be in control uh, with uh, the government. The people will be in control about what you can and can't do. It will not be an unregulated market like we have now. And before the other side gets too carried away about their radical credentials in terms of attacking big pharma and big corporations and everything, let's remember Plan Colombia, which was a plan to transfer $1 billion a year from the United States to Colombia in order to uh, bring down the cocaine trade. Of that $1 billion a year, $700 million never left the United States. It was uh, instead given to companies like Lockheed Martin and other big companies which made a fortune out of the war on drugs. The war on drugs has also benefited big corporations. So let's not be too fooled by this talk of a radical intervention to prevent uh, some some form of corporate takeover of drugs. Corporations already make lots and lots of money out of this war on drugs.
3: Mr Glaney, thank you very much. And uh, thank you to all our witnesses Uh, at the end of Act Two. We're going to ask you uh, now to invite... Those those witnesses for Act 3, Ian, you're staying here, and I'm going to be joined by Peter Hitchens and Ed Vigliami on my left. Richard, you're staying here. Louise, you're staying here. Steve, you're staying here. And we'd like to invite uh, Johan Harry back to the stage. Uh, Whilst uh, we're just changing over a few seats, let's go back to Jemima and see uh, what sort of questions are coming through. Jemima.
2: Uh, Jacob Wheeler would like to respond to Lord Blair and he wanted to remind Lord Blair that Amy Winehouse actually died from alcohol not from prescription drugs um, Ella Robertson uh, asks why is cannabis use in Holland where it is legal lower than the UK where it is illegal and another question why is reoffending and recidivism so high if rehabilitation is really happening in prison
3: Okay. Um, questions that we will come on to, we'll hopefully have a little bit of uh, time for at the end as well. Uh, we're going to begin Act Three now, and this time we're posing the following statement The case for continuing the war on drugs is built on political cowardice, not on public good. And Geoffrey, it's your turn to start the questioning.
7: Yeah. I mean, who said, I beg the Labour government not to return to the war on drugs? David Cameron. When in opposition, who said the war on drugs is an utter failure? Barack Obama, before he came, became president and uh, dedicated $40 billion a year to fighting it. So, Louise Arbour, why do the drug warriors always win? Why do, they <laughs> why do these politicians never change?
23: Well, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of a culture of fear that has been built uh, around, and we've heard it today, time and again. This kind of overcharacterization of this kind of flooding the markets with cocaine and all these terrible things. If uh, uh, if we move towards what is called legalization, this kind of rhetoric has tremendous kind of populist appeal. Um, and so I think it's all based, like the war on terror. These these concepts are based on a culture of fear. Uh, which is very easily cultivated. It seems to me the point we should make is the war on drug has had 40, 50 years of a run, trying Mm. to make its point. And I think, just to to put it very mildly, hasn't exactly been a great success. I think (laughs) I I would not overstate my case. So ending the
7: war would mean that other countries could experiment in their own way with decriminalisation, with regulation...
23: Exactly. That's exactly what this Global Commission on Drug Policy that uh, Richard is on, that I'm also serving on, is calling for. The mere fact that we're now talking about these issues is progress after 40 years of a kind of taboo conversation. Let's have
7: more Portugals, let's have more Netherlands and see what the evidence sorry, is. Yeah. Do they ever look at the evidence? And,
23: uh, and, and, and
7: Switzerland.
11: And Germany. And
7: South Australia right, and Western right, Australia. Right, right.
11: There is a real refusal to look at the evidence and it's really important we get these figures clear. The British Journal of Criminology, which has no dog in this fight, it's just there to find out independently what the facts are, says unequivocally, use went slightly up from 3.4% of the population to 3.7% of the population, but addiction was significantly significantly down from 7.6 per thousand to 6.8 per thousand HIV was down by 17% and the reason is simple, we keep hearing from Elliot Spitzer who I hugely admire and think is one of the best politicians in the United States that, that uh, we all agree on addiction we have a way, we, sorry we all agree on treatment, we have a way to pay for treatment, what the Portuguese did is they transferred all the money that is currently spent on arresting, harassing, jailing trying addicts, they used all of that for treatment that's our way of paying for it in the middle of a global depression, how are you going to pay for a massive rollout of treatment?
7: All right. Steve Rolls, what's going to, what is going to happen if the war on drugs ends? Are we going to suddenly get children with going home from school with drugs? No, we absolutely do that not. already, I mean, don't it, they?
24: It's not going to end overnight. This is something that's been in place for 40 years. It's going to be a process. that The, uh, the reform process will take, will take a number of years to, to progress and go forward, and we'll need to experiment with different models, see what works, uh, and follow the evidence. And... Uh, I mean, again, I just you just need to emphasise this is a blank slate. We can follow the evidence. We can approach this as pragmatists. We can build our um, build our policy on human rights principles and public health principles. This is not about relaxing the law. We're not liberalisers. It's this is about um, you know looking at the evidence and finding which policy works because you know we we, we have one option which is prohibition. We have this ho- another option which is. Uh, completely unregulated free markets. And in between, we have this whole array of uh, regulatory tools that we can use and apply and experiment with and find out what works to deliver the Mm -hmm. the results that we all want. We all want a safer and healthier society. Let's find out. Unfortunately, the current system means we can't even experiment with a whole array of those options around regulation.
7: Someone asked Richard Branson about cannabis. There are, according to the UN, 166 million people who take cannabis from time to time, none of them die from it.
8: No, I mean, for, for young people aged, I don't know, 18 to 25, it is their drug of choice, in the same way that older people over 25, alcohol is their drug of choice. Um, and uh, And almost all those young people... Age 25,
7: 26, you seem to switch to alcohol. Well, what we need, obviously, what politicians need, is more information. Ask for information, go to WikiLeaks. Uh, Are you there, Julian Assange?
26: (laughs) I I am, Jeff. How
7: how are you hanging out?
26: Well, I'm here in, in some secret hotel room. Right. I'm uh, not far from where I'm, where I'm under house arrest.
7: Right. Where, um, and not for drugs. Let me ask you, what can you tell us from WikiLeaks Cables about how the war on drugs puts pressure on com- countries not to decriminalise, not to end imprisonment?
26: Well, look, look, Jeffrey, any, any situation which has clearly come to an impasse where there's a clear failure needs experimentation in trials and limited models around the world. And there have been steps to do that. But we see that the United States, in, through its diplomatic core, uh, has been exercising its force to prevent those sort of trials. And We see that sort of situation in Bolivia um, with the interaction with the DEA in 63 countries. The Div-
7: it, Drugs Enforcement Authority, part of the US surveillance, I think it's got offices in 63 countries, hasn't it?
26: Yes, in, 60, in 63 countries, and we even see... Uh, cables from Paraguay uh, mm. showing how the DEA agreed to allow the Paraguayan government to use DEA surveillance facilities uh, to, to surveil some of uh, the, its political opponents uh, in, in Paraguay.
7: Mm-hmm. And as far as you're concerned, how does it come down for you? Is there a question of individual rights here, of uh, the right to, uh, to change your own mind, to decide what you put in your own body, the right? to decide how you'll think and imagine?
26: Well, I think we we must start at basic principles. And basic principles say that we, as individuals, have a right to our own self-determination. We have the right to freedom of thought. We have the right to freedom of speech. Provided that we do not engage in some sort of violence uh, to others, then our rights to do what we will uh, with our own thoughts uh, and our own body Uh, are sacrosanct. And the state should not be interfering uh, with those rights. That in in order to to, uh, keep our freedom of thought, we should have the right to control our own mental states. And that gives some people uh, extra creativity, and that is something that we need uh, all across the world.
7: And so the 166 million people who take cannabis, according to Mr Costa's report, uh, they have a certain basic liberty to decide how they're going to think and imagine and what drugs they're going to use for relaxation, for pleasure, perhaps to reduce pain.
26: Jeffrey, we we should look at marijuana as a a good example. I mean, this this is a drug that is about as addictive as potatoes, and yet it is being swept up uh, into this so-called war on drugs. We have to remember we really do have a war on drugs, And like all wars, it is a racket. It is a racket which has bought up huge industries that fight and lobby to keep the money flowing.
7: Richard Branson, last word from you. Is civil liberty part of the demand to end the war on drugs? Part of the reason?
8: Uh, Absolutely.
7: Vicente Fox, are you still out there? Yes, sir. What have you thought of the debate so far? You began it some hour ago.
10: Yes, uh, I I would like to comment on the case of Mexico because Mexico is not a drug producer nation. We produce marijuana and not even as much as produced in California. Number two, we're not a consumer nation. Our figures are extremely low. Mm -hmm. What happens is that we're in between those who produce the drug on the south, the Colombia, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and those who consume the drug on the north. And this being in between is costing us a severe, severe problem to the nation.
7: Thank you, President Fox. I I, I just have one question I want Richard Branson to answer to conclude. The California referendum... Uh, doesn't that suggest that California is going to go legal?
8: Uh, yes, I think it. I think it does. The next, the second forty-six
7: percent, wasn't it?
8: Yeah. So it looks. It looks like next time around. on, on marijuana we're talking about. Yes. Mm-hmm.
7: Yes. Thank you, thank you. Uh,
3: Jeffrey and witnesses. Thank you very much, Nato Elias.
12: Thank you very much, Steve. I know we have not been doing cross-examination as such now, but I just want to actually have a little interchange with you about one thing. Because you, you've been talking about a regulatory framework which would create thresholds in terms of the potency of any particular drug. Isn't it logically the case, and don't we know, as a matter of fact, the moment government does that, you will create a black market with drugs, more powerful, more potent, and that very second, you then have the black market we've been trying to eliminate. So you don't solve the problem.
24: Yeah, but you solve most of it.
12: No, no, you don't solve most of it, because the moment the drug addict can go around the corner and get something more powerful, he does 't, And then you have the crime, and you have not solved the problem. Well, yeah, you just most, said yes. Isn't that correct? Most
24: the market is not seeking the most powerful drugs. I sure mean, it when is. You, when you go into a bar, people aren't How all drinking How long have vodka. you had? When, when you on a college... The when, when, was in an American court now.
12: When were you on a college yeah. campus, Len?
24: People, people aren't all going into bars and drinking vodka. Sorry, we're not the QC here. I'm sorry. You, you, I mean, one of the things that we have within a legal market is that it tends to push the market towards the most potent, concentrated versions. I can buy crack on the streets and, of London, but I can't buy coca leaf. And, now, and, if you made an array of drugs of different potencies and strengths available, you might find, actually, that people migrated in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, if you then superimpose on that a regulatory system where the, where the more dangerous drugs were, were more heavily restricted and the less dangerous drugs were less heavily restricted, you could, you could shepherd people in the right
12: direction. Okay. We can't
24: do that with criminalisation because okay, okay. it's completely out of our okay,
12: control. Okay, oh, a lot of words said very quickly, and I'm sure most of them are right. <laughs> but... <laughs> And you got, <laughs> you, you, we got your colleague here who wanted to be up here, but we couldn't fit him in. Yes or no, will there not be another black market the moment you have those thresholds?
24: There will be a black market. Okay, after, thank after you, sir. Thank smaller,
12: you, sir. All right. Smaller than it is now, probably- okay. General McCaffrey, you know, I want to come back to you, and I, and I want to ask you a question that may seem a little bit off, but you'll see why. Am I correct, sir, that you, you won three Purple Hearts over the course of your military career? Sure. Okay, now the reason I ask that is because there was, the the predicate question here was, are we pursuing the continuation of the war on drugs, which is, again, the phrase we don't like, out of a lack of courage? Sir, are you you following this out of a lack of of courage?
13: It's it's a statement, you don't trust democracy. It's a statement that parents and pediatricians and school teachers and coaches and ministers have no right to have an alternative view, uh, that the current rates of drug addiction cause immense misery, and we want to prevent, educate, treat, uh, and confront the issue. By the way, if Governor Spitzer, if you'll permit me, three quick comments. Yes, sir. One is to commend uh, Dr. David Eagleman. Uh, we have a genius head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, Dr. Nora Volkow, who are bringing $800 million worth of research to bear in the problem. So there are... Uh, terrific new additions to our uh, protocols to deal with drug addiction. Secondly, Plan Colombia. President Santos had me down a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, to look at the enormous change for the better in Colombia. A lot of it's due to the courage, the skill, the commitment of the Colombian people uh, with the help of the United States. So don't tell me that the Plan Colombia was a disaster. Thank God for the peace uh, that now, generally speaking, uh, exists in Colombia. Third, President Fox, we love Mexico. It's a, it, Canada and Mexico are the only two vital countries in the United States. A hundred million of them, these spiritual, hardworking people. They're a major drug-producing country. Methamphetamines, heroin, uh, along with enormous amounts of marijuana. Most of the drug Criminal activities in the United States are dominated by the seven Mexican cartels. 50,000-some-odd murdered in Mexico. They're a major mafia inside the United States.
12: All right. Thank you, sir. And again, to conclude, I think it is, it, is not, it, it is not a lack of courage that continues the drive to change all of that and eradicate it just as you had been and as the data suggests you had. Ed, I want to come back to you on this issue of courage. Which do you think would be easier? as a matter of politics, human emotion, to actually do what you proposed in about an hour ago, which is to actually go after the money laundering, or to actually just embrace the flavour of the month, which is to say, let's p- create a regulatory framework which would still leave us with the same black market?
14: Well, <clears throat> exactly. I, think, I, well, I, think that, I mean, I've said what I've said about the money. I mean, I think what, what Steve talked about in terms of regulation and demand, it may apply in Camden Lock, it may apply in Greenwich Village, it may apply to the Groucho Club this misconstruing that most people take drugs for recreational reasons like I have done and people in this room no doubt Um, but this isn't the crisis, the crisis is that uh, life has become so awful in the human slag heaps that global capitalism has caused uh, that the best thing to do is to obliterate yourself Um, the barriers of the Americas the townships of Africa and becoming the case in in the post-industrial wastelands of our own country in America I've spent a lot of time in these places and you know, I think, in parentheses, it's unthinkable that Big Pharma won't get involved in this, and I think it's unthinkable that they'll get involved in it to sell as little as possible, because Big Pharma ain't like that. Capitalism is not like that. And, and the thing is that if we have... This, okay, a brand of crack that screws you up uh, 80% and is $5 a hit. It's regulated at that, as Misha described the skunk. The addicts I've worked among, they're going to scoff at that, and they're going to go for the crack that screws you up 99% for $2 a hit from the guys around the corner, because that's that's, that's the desperation of, of the addiction that they live among. So you're sort of back where they, where you started. and I mean... I'm glad we're talking about politics at last because the the causes of drugs are political in these desperate places. They are poverty and exploitation. And the political courage is to realize that. And at places like Ciudad Juarez, where I've spent an awful lot of time, I see a terrible future for everywhere else in that place. The, 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 the war is the liberation of the ghetto, the barrio, and the township against the poverty and exploitation that causes the desperation and the self-obliteration through drugs.
12: All right, so, Thank you, Ed. Very, very well said. Now, P- Peter... I want to go to Peter Hitchens because Peter was so effective at winning over the audience earlier this evening. So, Peter, but but I want want you to make and close tonight. And, Lord Blair, I'm sorry, we're just running out of time. But, Peter, make the moral argument. This is not just a matter of mechanistic policy. There is a moral imperative from your view. What is it?
17: Well, the main point is that taking drugs is itself wrong, and that is why they are illegal. And one of the reasons reasons we don't address this is because of the extreme selfishness of our society in which so many people imagine that their own pleasure trumps everything else. Julian Assange said that he was sovereign over his own body. Well, maybe he doesn't have anybody who cares about him. But if your family has to put up with you after you have destroyed your mental health or in some other way deeply damaged yourself by taking drugs then you and they will discover that you are not an island and that you have responsibilities to other people. And if there is no other force apart from the law which will deter you from taking that semi-suicidal step, then the law needs to be there. That's the main and fundamental point. The other thing is I hear Sir Richard Branson talking about the the taking of drugs, and particularly of that especially dangerous drug, cannabis, sordidly promoted as safe and soft, as a freedom... Comparable, apparently, to the freedoms of thought, speech, and assembly, which make this and others a free country. How can that be? The purpose of drugs is to befuddle us, to cloud our brains, to make us passive. If we are discontented with the society in which we live, surely it is utterly wrong and immoral to turn away from that, to dope ourselves into passivity, to make ourselves perfect fodder for dictators, despots, and propagandists, rather than to criticize change and reform the society which we find repulsive. And I turn to the people on the other side, and I I mean to be polite to them when I say the politest thing that I say about them, is that they are defeatists, dupes, and profoundly irresponsible. And I very much hope that their message fails and fails and fails again. Thank you all.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, We are going to bring you the results now, I think. Is that right? We're not going to bring you the result yet. We're going to have a little bit more free-flowing conversation, and I think the best place to pick up is... Uh, Juliet Assange, what do you make of Peter Hitchens' uh, statement that taking drugs is wrong and that is why they're illegal, if you're still there?
26: Well, I was just about to say, I couldn't believe that you gave that tweet the last word, but apparently... <laughs> word. Um <clears throat> Look, there's a certain sort of form of Calvinism about the different ty- types of drugs that we see. For example, nicotine, which makes one work harder uh, and work faster and burn out faster, is perfectly legal. Uh, so is coffee. It is, it is perfectly legal and makes one work faster and harder. Uh, but those drugs uh, which make one relax uh, or make one more imaginative, um, those drugs are made illegal. And that's some um, Western Euro- European Calvinism. Uh, Of course, we can all see the problems with uh, uh, severe uh, heroin uh, addiction, um, but we can all see that the solutions so far uh, have not worked. Um, So we need a time of uh, sensible, scientific, regulatory experimentation to see what works and what doesn't work, and if it works in one place, perhaps it can be cloned in another. At the moment, we have an enormous drug war lobby. That is the fact. Billions of dollars spent every year by that lobby uh, pushing its desires to keep the drug war going. Okay. As a result, corrupting, corrupting okay. uh, the bureaucracy and producing a restriction in supply which causes cartels which themselves corrupt uh, other uh, countries near drug suppliers.
3: Um, Lord Blair, you said... Uh earlier that it was probably an irreversible uh, irreversible policy and with the possibility of total catastrophe. Are you saying that all those countries that have taken steps so far cannot reverse those and shouldn't?
21: I don't think anybody could be against limited experiments, but so far the other side have confused two topics. They've confused decriminalisation and legalisation. They're not the same thing. Decriminalisation, which Portugal is doing, is actually... Uh, hands all the advantages to the bad guys because they can go on selling uh, without taxation uh, and gives us no advantages at all whereas legalization is the experiment that I fear because legalization is capable of once launched being unstoppable Julian Assange talks about the civil liberty to take drugs but there's also a civil liberty for children to grow up in households where adults don't take drugs in front of them and if we legalise this, we're, that's gone.
3: Uh, we'll go to Jemima for a few of the web questions in a second. But you want to respond to that, Richard Branson? No, I'm just
8: going to say that uh, decriminalisation in Portugal means that if you have a drug problem, you go in front of a panel um, of, uh, including a psychiatrist, and, and, and they try to help you, um, and 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 it does it, it does help. I mean, I, mean, I will the statistics that you're banding around today. It's just not true. Things in Portugal have got better. Uh, nobody's, nobody's been to prison in the last 10 years. Uh, those people who needed to help have managed to get
17: help. And if you'll excuse me, uh, Sir Richard, decriminalisation of drugs has taken place in this country in all but name. Uh, since 1973, when Lord Hailsham instructed magistrates to stop sending cannabis possessors to prison cannabis has been effectively a de- decriminalised drug in this country. In this country, there has been an enormous increase in drug taking and an enormous increase in crime during the period of decriminalisation. Is that evidence? I, I, the other point about the, 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 the decriminalizers is they ceaselessly talk about prohibition of alcohol in the United States, something about which they often know very little. But it actually is an argument against them. What they're saying is, here we have a drug in a society, alcohol, which has been legalised, and any attempt to criminalise it again after it has been legalised, fails. So what they're proposing is to make other drugs as legal as alcohol was in the United States before prohibition and to make them as impossible to put back in the bottle afterwards. You don't know and you don't care, in my view. You don't know and you don't care what the consequences of what you argue will be. It is a a fact
11: we do know and do care about that at the end of alcohol prohibition, the murder rate fell by 20%. And it never went back up again until the enforcement of drug prohibition. The two most violent periods in the history of the United States since the Civil War have been when, at, when prohibition was being enforced. First alcohol, then drugs. That's a huge number of killings who, your side and you have to account you know, for.
3: Doesn't, okay. okay. does not
11: address okay. my point at all. It doesn't, doesn't even
3: slightly I'm address go to it. To, uh, you're, I'm...
17: you're proposing making, making drugs legal in this country. And, and, okay. and, and, and therefore giving us another problem on top of alcohol and tobacco. I just want to widen this
3: out to, to, do nothing. to some of our audience uh, who are watching globally. Uh, Jemima, are there any specific questions for panel members here?
2: Uh, no specific questions to actual panel members, but a general okay. sentiment.
3: Sorry, Sorry, I was just going to say, if there aren't specific ones, I'll just go to audience uh, members, if there are any... Ha- uh, you, madam, yeah, in the front row. Can we just get a mic over here and just show me any hands further back just to, while we've got the panel here and then I'll go, go back to Jemima. Yeah.
2: Um, you mentioned that big corporations would um, benefit and profit from legalisation. Are you saying that you'd rather organised crime benefit from it than big corporations? 300
8: billion
14: a year organised crime takes. Yes. Uh, no, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a risk and, and go for the political option, neither. Uh, I don't see any particular advantage in um, handing, as it were, the middleman's role over from Los Zetas or the Sinaloa cartel to GlaxoSmithKline, um, uh, because... In the places we've talked all about Portugal and the Netherlands, and What I'm interested in the places where there are no psychiatrists, you know, where the addiction is desperate and chronic, like Bravo in Ciudad Juarez, where half the kids are on crack or meth by the time they're 12, where newlywed couples murder children to get rid of the debris from past lives. This is all about drugs. It's all about capitalism. It's a place where that attracted a huge workforce um, in order to, uh, and then to. to with people working in these ghastly assembly plants and then, you know, effed off to to Asia where they could do it even cheaper. Uh, That's a slag heap. Those are the places I care about and those are the places where, you know, where, where big farmers' record of what I will call criminality in the profits they make, even if that's a little legally dodgy, is not that much different from Los Zetas. And on the ground, the effect of their marketing and Los Zetas is just the same.
3: Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm being a ferocious timekeeper because uh, we've got a lot to get through. I just want to go back to Jemima. Sorry to cut you off. You were giving us a sense of the overall uh, position that was coming through to you now. What is it?
2: Well, just that the war on drugs is an extension of aggressive foreign policy of the superpowers. There's lots of sort of theories and uh, questions. Is it possible that the police and government are continuing the war on drugs because it's big business? That's Solly Solman. Um, you've got from Bernando on Google, isn't there a clear geopolitical motivation for the militaristic approach to the war on drugs that allows the U.S. to justify having troops in Latin America, Afghanistan, the sentiment sympathetic to producer countries and very hostile to the big consumption centers?
3: Thanks very much, Jemima. Well, it's now down to Uh, The last part of this, our two advocates are going to summarise the arguments we've heard this evening and give us their final thoughts on that motion. It's time to end the war on drugs. Elliot, you're first up.
12: Well, thank you, Emily. First, first, let me say what I think we always say at the end of a debate like this, but I really mean it tonight. Those who have participated on either side, thank you. This is a heartfelt, very tough issue, a so social problem that has beguiled politicians, academics, law enforcement, all people of good faith for a long, long time. And there is no easy answer, as we've all seen. Which brings me to a quotation that supposedly, I think, came from Bertrand Russell. He said, Parenthetically, I saw it in the back of a teabag and then I had to find out where it came from, but I think it's Bertrand Russell. It says, never be diverted from the truth by what you want to be true. And I fear that in this debate, we are falling into the trap of finding an easy answer, the flavor of the month, and having been in government, having been a prosecutor, I prosecuted those organized crime cartels, and we can beat them. We desire desperately to find the easy answer and latch onto it and say, we will decriminalize, we will somehow make a more permissive regulatory environment or a tougher regulatory environment, the problem will go away. It doesn't work that way. This issue of addiction is so deep-seated in the social problems of poverty, the profit incentives of cartels. We must have the nuanced policies that we have right now. I don't call it a war on drugs because that sounds massive, it sounds overwhelming, it sounds as though it is militaristic and that's not the image we want. But as General McCaffrey portrayed it, this is a policy with so many different facets. It does have treatment for users. I was in those trenches as a prosecutor, frontline prosecutor. Misha, we don't send somebody who is caught the first time and is a user to jail. We just don't do it. If you look at those rap sheets and see 85 other crimes, that's why that person's in jail. Three strikes and you're out? No, this is not what we're talking about. Fellas, this is a nuanced policy. We have treatment in health care for users. We must have, yes, we must have that coercive pressure. Tough love to get people to pursue the treatment. Have you ever had an intervention with an addict? Have you ever seen how difficult it is to get them to do what they desperately don't want to do? If you don't have some coercive pressure, it won't work. This is not because it's an overbearing government that is not friendly to its citizens. These are the tools we have to integrate into one overarching policy. I wish that President Nixon had never used the Warren drugs metaphor. It hasn't helped. What we have is a carefully integrated, nuanced policy that evolves over time. Do I agree with you? The recidivism rate coming out of prison is horrifying. Yes, 80-plus percent, because we don't put enough into treatment. Sir Branson, if I could put triple the budget into into treatment, I would do it right now. And you know what I do? I tax everybody with income over a million dollars to pay for it. That's where I am on these issues, because we need to do it.
11: You and me. You and me.
12: That's what we need to do. That's the way we're gonna solve this problem, not by decriminalizing, not by pretending there's a magic bullet. Let me end in an odd place. Peter Hitchens was right about something. Not everything, <laughs> but something. He was right it's when right he about said... everything, actually, but you'll count catch- All right, well, we'll have that later. He was right, we use the criminal code to establish our moral values. We do, that's what they are. That's why it is illegal to have heroin, and to sell it, and crack, and meth, we as a community define our moral code through our criminal statutes. That's what a society is. And that is why, as a society, we have said certain things are fundamentally wrong. Murder, selling crack to kids, producing crack, selling cocaine. Those things are wrong. We make them illegal, and we should. Thank you.
3: Jeffrey, the floor is yours. You have three minutes.
7: Thank you, Emily. Ladies and gentlemen, the war on drugs is not a failure. It's an absolute bloody disaster. The crime cartels the gangs, making their massive tax-free profits, bribing police, bribing politicians, bribing judges, killing judges and police and politicians. The losers... Those 250 uh, 250 million people, the UN tells us, use drugs, less than 10% have problems, it says. Well, that's 225 million people who don't have problems. Their only problem is the police. Their only problem is the war on drugs, which means prohibition, which means punishment. We know that addicts do not deserve prison. I've been a judge in London. I've been forced by the sentencing rules to send people to prison for certain amounts of drugs. And we all know that drugs are the easiest place to get, uh, prisons are the easiest place to get drugs. So the war on drugs has been a disaster and yet still we hear it. It's endless, this war. It can't be won, this war. It's it has no real enemies. It's a war on a common noun. The war, of course, it's created, conceived by Richard Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover in the days of reefer madness, in the days when it was thought that drug takers were all degenerate evildoers. Forty years on, we know the truth that most of them are law-abiding citizens except for their decision to take, as uh, sometimes very occasionally, uh, a drug other than tobacco, alcohol and coffee. It's interesting, isn't it, that Mr Coster and everyone after him has avoided the phrase, the war on drugs, because they know they can't defend it. After 40 years of total disaster, no sane person could. Uh, so we have Peter Hitchens. Uh, we have, who wants a surge uh, in the war on drugs? But they say, this is a motion, let's legalise all drugs. That's not the motion. Decriminalisation, regulation, you can have endless numbers. Ed Williamy says, oh, we've got to uh, have a war on the banks. Fine, we're all in favour of that. A war on, on money makers, sure. Uh, In fact, uh, cocaine, 70% of banknotes in this country uh, have traces of cocaine. An extraordinary statistic going to prove that cocaine perhaps is Mother Nature's way of saying you're earning too much. (laughs) Cocaine, (laughs) cannabis, uh, cannabis, for example, you can have sold in... Coffee shops, as in Amsterdam, you can have sold uh, like pornography in shops that are licensed, that exclude 18-year-olds, and you can have a much better way of control of t- Today, children can get drugs easily. There is a civil liberties aspect to it, as Julian Assange says, there is a right to freedom of thought. There is a right to change our mood. There is an individual liberty here. And what a gift the war on drugs is to authoritarian regimes, to China. 500 million people in gulags because they're drug addicts. I wonder how many of those are addicted to democracy. Well, let us conclude by saying this. Politicians may be cowardly, or they may just think that we want them to continue the war on drugs, that we're in favour. So this is your opportunity to show them, this is your opportunity to tell truth to power, to vote yes, to tell them stop wasting money, stop wasting lives, vote yes to stop the war.
3: Well, that moment of truth has arrived. A ballot box has been round the hall, and the votes have been counted. I can bring you the results. Let you. Let me remind you.
9: <laughs>
3: You're voting yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I need a call on this. Do you want to wait and postpone the count? How many? How many? pluses have we got? Put
12: your
7: head four, yes. okay. two, three. Four, five, Okay, five, okay. Six, You seven. can have
3: six if they're on your side. Right. This, uh, this is how things stood. You have to do the maths. This is how things stood uh, before the debate. And I'm going to take you the web result first, which was 92% for. That was in favour of ending the war on drugs. 3% were against and 5% didn't know. In the hall, just to remind you, we had 60% in favour of ending the war on drugs. That was four. 15% against. 25% were don't knows. After all the rhetoric and all the arguments, here is what has happened tonight in the hall. We now have 64.8% in favour of ending the war on drugs. We have 29.6% against an end to the war on drugs, and 5.6% don't knows. Just to take you through what that means then, the vote has swung for ending of the war on drugs by plus 5% and against plus 15%, to make that a little bit clearer. So the vote for has gone up 5%, the vote against has gone up 15%, and the don't knows have gone down That's all of you in the hall here, plus you four. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER Five. Um, I told you I'd leave the mouse to you. Uh, The web voting, however, is still continuing on YouTube and it will do so for another 10 minutes. So that web vote is still open. If you're here with us in London tonight, do visit the Versus Google Plus page uh, when you get home or indeed on your phones entirely possible in the next 10 minutes for the final result. But uh, from here, I'd like to thank all our wonderful speakers, you the audience, Intelligence Squared and Google for making all of this possible. And if you're online, please stay because the show continues on YouTube and Google+, Plus with you, the web, for the next half an hour. Even more importantly, or just as importantly, go to the versus Google+, Plus page and tell us what you think should be the next topic of debate. Should it be foreign aid? Should it be gay marriage? Should it be religion? The war on terror? World? You decide. This is where I leave you. Thank you and good night. But keep watching. And we're now going to get to the Get Talking Hangout with Jemima, where the debate continues. Thank you.
22: Thank you. Well done.
2: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at IntelligentSquare.com and follow us
0: on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world